Our Father, uh, most of us in here are husbands and uh, fathers. We've got grandfathers. Uh, most of us are married. Uh, some guys aren't, but more than likely they will be because that is the normal course for most men. And uh, you have said in Psalm 127, you reminded us that unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, labor in vain. So much of our life is work. So much of our life is making a living. So much of our life, so many hours of our lives, is, is spent in simply paying the bills and trying to provide and make it through life. And there are times when our work is a joy and there are times when our work is, um, is, is more difficult and it's frustrating and we're really not in our sweet spot and we're out of position. Uh, none of us like to go through those, uh, those episodes. But all work, all work is ordained by you. And even in those times where we're not using our gifts and our work, and where we're kind of bored by our work and not challenged, um, well, it's the means by how we provide for a family. And as men, we feel the weight, and we should feel the weight. You said in your word, if if anyone doesn't provide for his own, he's worse than an unbeliever. He's worse than a pagan. Uh, men are to work. Christian men especially are to work. And you told us that whatever you do, do your work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. So ultimately, we do our work, and we do our work as unto you. It's how you have ordained it that we would provide for our families. But Lord, we thank you that even as we feel the pressure of providing, even as we feel the pressure of meeting the monthly obligations and trying to set some aside for the future and all of that, and that is, well, in this day and age, it's virtually uh, impossible because so many things are set against that because so many principles of your word where you teach us how to handle money and how economies are to function uh, those are absolutely being violated and ignored and blasphemed. So no wonder we are in the shape and condition that we are in. There, there are times when um, providing for a family is, um, is a joy and there is a time where there is abundance, but then there are other times when we are nervous and we are anxious and we are deeply concerned about where it's going to come from because our normal means, our normal roots of supply, uh, the, the normal areas where money comes in, we see them being dried up. We, we see drought conditions, and it makes us concerned. But Lord, you, you have reminded us that we cannot do this by ourselves. We are to work, and we are to work hard. Uh, not only are we working, but we're working to take care of those whom we love. And whether we have grandkids or we have little kids of our own, 
we're trying to build a family. We're trying to build a home. But we can't do it by ourselves. That's why you said, unless the Lord builds the house. They who labor, labor in vain. We can't go 24-7. We've got to get some sleep. What a great God you are, because even when we're exhausted, even when we're worn out, even when we're fatigued, you give to your beloved, even in their sleep. Thank you for being such a great father to us. We are not walking through life by ourselves. We've got a safety net. Sometimes we're on a tightrope and we're afraid we're going to fall off. Well, if we fall, you're going to catch us. And you've promised to meet our needs according to your riches and glory. We like to have the big reserves in the bank, six months, two years, but sometimes it's day to day. Wherever we are, may our trust be in you. Thank you for our homes, thank you for our work, thank you for our families. We ask for favor. We ask that you would give us courage to trust your promises even when we can't see how they will be fulfilled. We trust in you, and we trust in you alone as we go about our work and our responsibilities. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible, turn with me to uh, Genesis, uh, either one or two. We're going to be in either one of them. We're going to be in both of them. We are, uh, we are doing a study we're calling men, marriage, family. I think that's what we're titling the study. Uh, we're looking at uh, the creation ordinances that God put in place from creation for all men and all cultures and all societies. Um, we are living in interesting times because uh, what we are seeing and what we're watching on a daily basis, and I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but allow me to beat a dead horse for a few minutes. Uh, what we are watching right now before our very eyes, and, and we have been watching this for a while, but we're watching what is described in, in Psalm 11.3. Uh, it says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, where is the security for the righteous? And what we are watching happening before our very eyes is that we're watching uh, the demolition of the foundations. Uh, everything has to have a foundation. Your house has a foundation. When I first moved to Texas from California, I was astonished at how many radio commercials there are. Every other radio commercial is for foundation repair. And I didn't understand. I said, what, what, what's the deal with these guys and foundations? Well, it's the soil in North Texas. Is, um, it's a challenge. And uh, if you don't have foundation problems, you just wait a while, because you're probably going to get them, because it's just the nature of the beast. Uh, you don't buy a house without having someone checking the foundation. Uh, families, uh, houses have foundations, physical houses. Families have foundations. Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, who labor in vain. Uh, nations have foundations. Uh, the most important part of any structure or any, any edifice is the foundation. What we're watching before our eyes, and it's interesting because it's not just one aspect of our civilization and of our culture. It seems to be virtually Every aspect that you can look at and you can uh, analyze, we are watching it being destroyed before our very eyes. It's, it's just one big demolition project, and it seems like basically every day you hear more news about something collapsing and something being changed. 
When I was in fourth grade, 1958, not 1858, 1958, I'm playing basketball with a kid across the street. His name is Craig, and we're just shooting hoops. And as we're shooting hoops and we're talking, I said, hey, Craig, where's your dad? I never see your dad. And he goes, oh, my dad doesn't live with us. And I said, your dad doesn't live with you? And he goes, no. And I said, why not? He said, because my mom and dad are divorced. And I said, what's that? That's a true story in 1958. Uh, I had heard a divorce, but I wasn't quite sure what it was. Now, I went to a public school, and Craig was the only boy, he was the only kid in my fourth grade class who was not living with his original parents. He was the only kid in my class whose parents were divorced in 1958. I didn't know what divorce was. I didn't know anybody who was divorced. I mean, it was kind of a foreign concept to me. Divorce, he goes, yeah, my mom and dad are divorced. I went, huh. I remember going home and telling my mom and dad about that because it was so unusual to me. That was 1958. By 1978, um, there had been a shift in this country. Um, See, in 1958, how come, how come he was the only kid in my fourth grade class whose parents, original parents, weren't married to each other? Why was that? Were people just nicer in 1958? Was life easier in 1958? Were husbands and wives just naturally kinder and sweeter, and did they just make amends for each other, and, and they were just easygoing, and life was not as hard and stressful? Is that why he was the only kid in my class whose parents, uh, he was the only kid whose parents were divorced? Everybody else's parents were married. Not everybody was Christians, but they were all married. No, there were some foundations in the culture. And those foundations came from somewhere. But over the next 20 years, we would see a shift, we would see an earthquake, and we went from a culture, and we had been a culture uh, from our inception, and, and pretty much across Europe, and pretty much across uh, uh, the British Empire, and across the United States and Canada, uh, and in South America, pretty much anywhere you looked, what you had, and you had it in America, we had a culture of marriage, and in 20 years, we found ourselves in a culture of divorce, and we've been there ever since. Why? Because the foundations are being destroyed. Uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, and, and you see, you've got to ask the question, where do these foundations come from? Uh, several weeks ago, when I had no voice and I attempted to speak, uh, some of you were great, very gracious, and you stood here, or you sat here, and you listened, and you acted as though you could understand what I was saying. And I know that you had difficulty, but I attempted to, uh, uh, on that evening, to talk about a particular kind of beauty. And, and, and if you heard it and understood it, forgive me for repeating it. But there is a certain kind of beauty that is not to be found in a woman. Uh, there is a beauty that's not to be found in a, in a sunset or in a flower. There is a type of beauty that is only to be found in a stadium. A stadium. And it's just not any stadium. Uh, you won't find this in a stadium set up for football. You won't find this beauty 
set up for a stadium, set up for soccer or for monster trucks. This type of beauty is in a particular part, particular kind of stadium, and uh, you park and you go through the gates and give them a ticket and go up the escalators and you're in the bowels of the stadium. And you, you find your level and your mezzanine and you go into this tunnel and it's kind of dark and constricted and there are a lot of people going back and forth. And uh, you, you, there's kind of a flow, there's kind of a herd and you're moving. And you haven't seen the beauty yet, but you're about to because there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And when you come out of that tunnel, you remember the first time you saw a Major League Baseball game? You remember the first time you came out of that tunnel and you saw a freshly marked baseball field? That is a thing of beauty. There's symmetry. It's, it's just beautiful. And if you've never seen, you remember the first time you saw it? I do. Wrigley Field in Los Angeles. And three weeks ago when I said that, some guy over here is going, and I'm going, Google it. Because William Wrigley, who owns the Cubs and built Wrigley Field, by the way, he designed Wrigley Field himself in Chicago. He also had a triple-A team in the Pacific Coast League. And he built Wrigley Field in Los Angeles. And it would seat about 30,000 people. And it was identical to Wrigley Field in Chicago, except on the front, he put a 12-story uh, office tower. Other than that, it was identical. It's been destroyed. That was where I really, that, I can remember walking through that tunnel with my dad and my Uncle Joe and seeing that and went, gosh. You make your way up to your seat, and you don't even want to talk because you sit down, and all you don't want to do is look at that field. There's a beauty to it. Uh, where did baseball come from? Well, in uh, 1845, Alexander Cartwright codified what we know as modern-day baseball. Uh, he came up with the rules, and he came up with the dimensions of baseball. Uh, in 1845, Alexander Cartwright uh, ordained that baseball would be played on a field in the shape of a diamond with four bases, each base being 90 feet apart. And it was good. Uh, in 1845, he ordained that baseball would be played by two teams made up of nine players on each team. And it was good. In 1845, he ordained that baseball would be a game that would consist of nine innings. And if the score was tied after nine innings, they would play additional innings until one team outscored the other. And once again, it was good. He ordained that the pitcher's mound, the pitcher's rubber, would be 60 feet, six inches from home plate. And it was good. He ordained that uh, each batter would get four balls and three strikes. And it was good. It was very good. Baseball comes from somewhere. In our day and age, we are so secularized, certain foundational principles that are in place They've always been in place, and you don't think much about them um, until someone starts destroying them. And then when they start destroying them, you got to do some thinking and say, wait a minute, I'm not sure you want to mess with this. So somebody says, well, wait a minute, I don't think it's fair that baseball only has nine players because someone's going to be excluded. I want to have a team 
that has 11 players. Because in football they have 11 players. It's not fair that in baseball you get nine, but in football you get 11. So they file a lawsuit in federal court that I want to have 11 players on my team. And the judges file briefs and go back and forth, and they, uh, and they agree that it's fine that baseball, on your team, on your team, you can have 11 players. Well, you know what that does? That disfigures the game. That takes away from the beauty of the game. Because that's not what was intended. That takes away from the beauty of the game. Well, I don't think it's right that I only get three strikes. I don't think that's fair. Uh, uh, I'm not from the Dominican Republic, and the best baseball players in the world are from the Dominican Republic. And I think there ought to be a rule. If you're not born in the Dominican Republic, which has more great baseball players per square inch than anywhere else on the face of the earth, if you're not from the Dominican Republic, you ought to be able to have six strikes. And so once again, a suit is filed in federal court, and they go back and forth. And yes, that's right. If you're not born in the Dominican Republic, you get six strikes. Dominican players get three. Everybody else gets six. And you say that can't happen. Well... Are you sure in this day and age? Because everything's up for grabs. I mean, it's getting to the point where oil and water can't mix. But I'm telling you, any day somebody's going to file a lawsuit or somebody's going to pass a law that oil and water can mix. Even if it can't, let's say that it can't. This is what we're watching going on before our eyes. Where does marriage come from? Where does family come from? Where does manhood come from? And if you guys have been here, you, you, you know how I got into this. I've been working on this book with my son, Josh. We're writing this book to young men. I did a book called Point Man in 1990. It came out. And they asked me to do Point Man 2.0 for a young generation of men. I couldn't, I couldn't seem to get it by myself. And then over Thanksgiving, my son, Josh, gave me some ideas, and I thought, Josh, you got to write this book with me because I can't get this. You understand this younger generation. And so we went to work on the book. And we've got uh, 20 days left to turn it in. And uh, we're making good progress. And, uh, but one of the things I just finished uh, the other day was a chapter on the case for marriage. Because Josh said, Dad, when you wrote Point Man, you talked to husbands and fathers, and you just assumed guys were going to be married. You can't assume that anymore because things have changed since 1990. So I'm having to make a case for marriage. And it's not just for the young guys, it's for our whole culture. What is the case for marriage? What is marriage? Because you see, as Kostenberger said in his book, God, Marriage, and Family, we're having to define things we've never had to define before. For the first time in our life, we're having to define marriage. It's like defining water. Define water for me. Well, it's pretty simple. Actually, it must be very complex. Well, that's water. Well, I don't think that's fair. Well, then let's, must be, let's make it something else. Uh, these are the days in which we're living, is it not? Where did marriage come from? Where did family come from? Where did man come from? What does it mean to be a man? We've been in Genesis 1 and 2. Why are we in Genesis 1 and 2? Uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Genesis 1 and 2. Maybe you're already there. As we go into it, understand that Genesis 1 and 2 are not true. It's just a myth, but we're going to look for a deeper metaphysical meaning uh, tonight. Now, our culture tells us Genesis 1 and 2 are not true. You see? But, and I'm not going to take a lot of time on this, um, 
Jesus said Genesis 1 and 2 were true. But see, we, we live in this culture, and for 200 years, the enemy, who is always attacking and strategizing against the one true God and his Son and his Spirit, um, the, the enemy has put out a full frontal attack on the authority of the Bible. And the thought is, well, you can't accept Genesis 1 and 2 because of science, with the big S. Science is the authority. And as Martin Lloyd-Jones has said, who was an eminent scientist before he became a pastor theologian, if you trust in the authority of science, you don't know anything about the history of science. And if you study and read the history of science, you will know that scientists dogmatically have been wrong on issues time and time and time and time again. And they will look at you like you were a fool when, in essence, it is just a theory and they present it as fact, and if you don't get on board, there's something wrong with you, but within 20, 30, 40 years, you'll find out that they were wrong, and so if you make science your authority, you've got the wrong authority. Jesus had no problem with Genesis 1 and 2. This is the creation of the world. In six days, it says that God created the world. You say, oh, that can't happen. Why not? God could have created in six nanoseconds. And in the six days of creation, every time God created at the end of the day, he said it was good. And I don't have time to read all the passage. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Everything is good. There is symmetry. There is beauty. You look at the earth. Uh, I was reading Ecclesiastes 1 this morning. Uh, Solomon is talking about the earth and the beauty and the mountains and the rivers that flow down and they flow into the sea, yet the sea never gets full, and then it is recycled. And the, the, the earth is just absolutely, it is a phenomenal piece of engineering, is it not? Yes, it is. So why are the foundations being destroyed? Because where we are today is that, if you go to Romans 1.18, it tells you the sequence that happens when someone looks at creation and says, God did not create it. In Romans 1.18, the evidence that God is there is overwhelming and staggering. If you look at the Hubble telescope, you see order. You see design. You see symmetry. If you look into a microscope and look at DNA, you see order and design. You see computer code. That just didn't happen by time or chance. But we are told that it did. You see. So we worship the creation instead of the creator who made it. And when you deny the truth of God and suppress the truth and unrighteousness, you put truth in a box and you sit on it. And what happens is their foolish heart is darkened. Professing to be wise, they became as fooled, as fools. So when you deny that God is there, it's irrational is what it is. And it is a rebellion against the authority and the existence of God. Because the fact of the matter is, as one atheist said, if I acknowledge that he is there, I've got to bow. And they don't want to bow. They want to be their own gods and they want to be their own authority. And as that, as that process continues and continues, if you want to go that own way, eventually God will just let you go that way. In fact, he will give you over. The worst thing that can ever happen is for God to let you go the way that you want to go. It is the worst thing. That's why Jesus said, not my will, but thine will be done. Thy will be done. And so God gives them over. And you look at the various sequences of when God gives them over. And at a certain point, he gives them over to a reprobate mind. A reprobate mind is an unreasoning mind. Unreasoning. 
The verse I keep going back to as I look at where we are in this culture is Job 12. Because uh, if, if you're not careful, you can get extremely frustrated and you can get extremely fearful where we are right now. I read something this week that, um, of, uh, that this has sort of flown under the radar, but apparently there are six decisions that the Supreme Court have rendered against the current administration. And they have ruled against them. I don't remember all six. The one I remember, they ruled that the federal government cannot choose the pastor of a local church. Now, I don't have the footnote and I don't have the evidence in front of me, but that is staggering and that is breathtaking. Is it not? Yeah, it is. Things are absolutely out of control. Think the, 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 the grasping for power. What, what we are looking at in this country, we are looking at tyranny is what we're looking at. And we are also looking at insanity on just about every front. What's being done economically is insane. You couldn't run your family budget for two weeks that way. You couldn't run your small business for two weeks that way. It is irrational. Is it not? And if you spend too much time watching the news, if you spend too much time um, observing this and thinking about it, it will ruin your life and it will ruin your sense of well-being. It's not that we're unaware, but there's a point where it's just not productive to go into any more details. Um, it helps to read the Bible and get perspective when it looks like things are out of control. And I mentioned this, I've mentioned this several times. A couple years ago as I was reading through my chapters, which I do daily, which gets me through the Bible in a year. I'm reading Job 12. Uh, I didn't sleep all that night. I was upset. I was angry because of what I'd seen on the news last night. I woke up kind of on the wrong side of the bed, got my coffee, got my Bible. I sat down. I'm reading my chapters. I read Job 12. I'm really, I'm out of sorts from the night before. I read Job 12, 23. It was on my Bible reading calendar. He makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then leads them away. He deprives of intelligence the chiefs of the earth's people. This is where it comes from. Why? He's given them over. They've denied who he is. He deprives of intelligence the chiefs of the earth's people, makes them wander in a pathless waste. They grope in darkness with no light. He makes them stagger like a drunken man. Ultimately, God is behind it. You want to act as though I'm not there and you want, to, you want to live this way for years and years and years and enact this law and this law and this law, you're going to stagger like a drunken man and you're going to go off the cliff. Ultimately, God's behind it because God's sovereign. And God's not shocked and God's not surprised. We're kind of stunned by the whole thing, but it's all under the control of God, even though it looks out of control. Because there is a, there is a prophetic plan for the ages and we are right on schedule to the nanosecond and God has it all under control. It's more exact than an atomic clock. We are right where we should be, that God ordained before the foundations of the world. He's got his eye on you and your family, and we're going to be good. That's either true or it isn't. So we don't have to be fearful. We just thank God that he's opened our eyes to see the truth of the, of the gospel. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, and that they may not see the truth. Of the, of, uh, uh, they might not see the truth. But out of mercy and grace, he has opened our eyes to the gospel, to the good news that our sins can be forgiven through Christ, 
we, we can be reconciled to God the Father through Christ, and he's given us a new heart and a new mind. If any man is in Christ, behold, he's a new creature. All things pass away, all things become new. He's given us a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29 says, I know the plans I have for you, plans for your welfare, not for your calamity, to give you a future and a hope. That's a great verse. We don't know the context, most of us. Jeremiah 29 was addressed to the people who had lost their freedom, lost their liberty, and lost their economic property rights in Judah and were in captivity for 70 years. And God says, don't worry, I know the plans I have for you. Even though the worst has happened, I know the plans that I have for you. Not for welfare, but for, not for calamity, but for your welfare to give you a future and a hope. And then earlier in the passage, their nation has collapsed. The foundations are destroyed. And then early in the passage, he says, you're going to be there in, uh, in the book. He says, you're going to be there 70 years. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to get married. I want you to get your kids married. I want you to plant gardens. I want you to go to work. I want you to live life because I'm in charge of your life and I'm in control. So we don't freak out and we don't get in despair. God has a plan. You know what's great? We don't have to live as everyone else is living because of the mercy of God. If the foundations are being destroyed, we can strengthen the foundations in our homes and in our families. That's the good news. Okay. We want to talk about marriage tonight. Um, where we are in marriage is, is remarkable. Where did marriage come from? Marriage comes from the creation ordinance in Genesis. There are four creation ordinances. You'll find them in Genesis 1, and 1, the first creation ordinance. It says, God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. There's your first creation ordinance. These are ordinances for all people and all cultures and all time. So the first creation ordinance, be fruitful and multiply, is procreation. They were to have children. Second one is also in the same verse. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, over every living thing who's on the earth. That is, the, the second creation ordinance is the ordinance to work. They were to subdue the earth. They were to work the earth. If you go over to chapter 2, verse 15, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. So you have the ordinance of work. Men are to work. Uh, the third is in chapter 2. It is the creation ordinance of a day off, which is called the Sabbath. Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, all their host. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. Why did God rest? Was he exhausted? No, God doesn't get tired. He rested as an example to us because we get exhausted. So the principle is, out of seven days you take one day off. You get in the New Testament, it doesn't matter which day you take off, but you need to take a day off to rest and worship. Uh, the fourth creation ordinance is in Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That is the creation ordinance of marriage. Um, this has been understood. And I, I, I want to tell you, we're talking about foundational principles here that have been practiced in all cultures, in all civilizations. This is for all generations throughout history. These are foundational principles that you do not miss with, and we're missing with it. Um, you say, are they really foundational principles? Yeah. A gentleman named John Eastman has done research. I'm going to quote him. 
Um, he said in 1859, the California Supreme Court held that the first purpose of matrimony by the laws of nature. What are the laws of nature? Where do the laws of nature come from? God. California Supreme Court, 1859, held that the first purpose of matrimony by the laws of nature and society is procreation. The first, they got it right. It's right out of Genesis. Isn't that interesting? So marriage, what was the purpose of marriage? Procreation. That's one of the purposes is to have kids. A century later, the same court recognized that the institution of marriage serves the public interest because it channels biological drives that might otherwise become socially destructive and ensures the care and education of children in a stable environment. Um, God created sex. So, yeah, yeah, he created marriage and also created sex. So God says all these creation days, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, and it's pristine, there's no sin, everything is wonderful, he creates the man, and then God says something's not good. What's not good? The man's alone. So no sin, a perfect relationship with God in the midst of something that's very, very good, God says something isn't good, and what's not good? The man's alone. So as good as it was, God was going to do something even gooder. I went to public school. <laughs> God's going to do something even better. So what does God do in Genesis 2? While the man is sleeping, God takes a rib, he fashions a woman, and you say, it can't happen this way. Why not? Why can it not happen this way? Well, because of science. What does science know? Were they there? Jesus, when Jesus was asked about divorce, Jesus went back to Genesis 1 and 2 and said, Have you not read that it is written, He created them male and female? Jesus, who is God, He's either God or He isn't, Jesus was going back often to Genesis 1 and 2. He had no problem with Genesis 1 and 2. Why did he have no problem with Genesis 1 and 2? Because he's God and he was in Genesis 1 and 2, and he's the one who created the world. He was the one who made them male and female. You can't separate Christ from Genesis 1 and 2. You can't do it. The reason he came to die was because of what happened in Genesis 3 when sin entered into the world. And that's all tied up in Romans 5. So you can't, this isn't Microsoft Word, this is the Word of God. You don't cut you don't change, you don't highlight, you don't paste, you delete. You can't say, I'll take the New Testament, but not take the Old. You can't do that. He doesn't give you that option. Okay. So he creates a woman, and this guy wakes up, and this is the first time in history that a man has gazed upon a naked woman. And he says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh is my flesh. Now, maybe that's not how you would have put it. For the first time, he wakes up and he sees this naked woman in front of him. And it was good, clean, and pure because God invented marriage. <clears throat> God invented sex. God doesn't have a problem with sex. He invented it. The problem is it gets perverted. You get off the rails, it's like any other good gift. You get off the rails and bad things happen. So God invented it. He and his wife, they were naked and not ashamed. Why? Because sin hadn't entered the world yet. They hadn't rebelled against God. So God's not against this stuff. God is for this stuff. And it's always been understood. By the way, in Kostenberger's book, he is talking about sex and God's purposes for sex, and I'm not going to read much. But there is an aspect where God created sex and marriage for the public good. According to Christopher Ashe, let me read you the quote. This encompasses the benefits of ordered and regulated sexual relationships in human society. Undisciplined and disordered sexual behavior must be restrained. 
for it carries with it a high social and personal cost and family breakdown, destructive jealousies, resentments, bitterness, and hurt. Ordered behavior is to be encouraged because this has benefits that extend beyond the couple to children, neighbors, and the wider networks of relational society. So when sexual activity is just unhindered with no restraint, bad things happen. I'll show you that in a few minutes. The reason I point that out is that in 1959, the Supreme Court of California, let me read this again, said that the institution of marriage serves the public interest because it channels biological drives that might otherwise become socially destructive. Is that not interesting? In the, in the 13th century, Henri de Brockton wrote this from his book, The Law of Nations. He said, from the law of nations comes the union of man and woman entered into by mutual consent of both, which is called marriage. Okay. This has been universally understood. William Blackstone, if you were going to be an attorney for the first 150 years in this nation, you didn't go to law school, you read Blackstone. Blackstone said this. He said, uh, he described the relationship of husband and wife as founded in nature, creation ordinances, but modified by civil society, the one directing man to continue and multiply his species, that's procreation, the other prescribing the manner in which that natural impulse must be confined and regulated. Same thing. Sexuality is to run on two rails, and it gets outside, people get hurt and people get destroyed. John Locke, whose influence on the American constitutional order, I'm still quoting Eastman, maybe unsurpassed, described the purpose as marriage, the end of the conjunction of the species, as being not barely procreation, but the continuation of the species. Levi Strauss, the father of modern anthropology, former dean of the, uh, the Académie Française, Academy of France. Now, this guy is the father of modern anthropology. Listen to what he says. The family, based on a union, more or less durable, but socially approved, of two individuals of opposite sexes. Was this guy Christian? No. His father of modern anthropology. Listen to this. Two individuals of opposite sexes who establish a household and bear and raise children appears to be a practically universal phenomenon present in every type of society. These are foundational principles for everybody. Uh, historian G. Rabina Quayle's comprehensive sociological survey of the development of marriage from prehistoric times to the present. Why am I going into all this? Because in the last 10 years, We've attempted to redefine what's been in place in every civilization for a thousand years, and if you don't get on board, there's something wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. This is flying, not only in the face of the Bible, but in the face of history and human civilization. And if you don't rubber stamp it, well, you're just not cool. Quayle says, her, her, her comprehensive sociological survey of the development of marriage from prehistoric times to the present reveals that marriage as the socially recognized linking of a specific man to a specific woman and her offspring can be found in all societies. Are we not living in interesting times? Because we're being told, oh no, that, that, not, not, that's not marriage. Actually it is. Uh, and you say, yeah, this is crazy. It's just all happened, what, in the last 10 years? Actually, you've got to go back to California, where I was born and raised. In 1979, there was a shift on marriage. See, this has been in place for a while. 
What happened in 1979 is that for the first time, and, and let me also say this, laws were in place in all nations to keep marriage and family together. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, adhere to his wife. It was a permanent bond. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave, adhere to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Before Almighty God, the two become one. Before Almighty God. This is serious stuff. In 1979, no-fault divorce was passed in California. By 1977, nine states had adopted no-fault divorce. And by 1995, every state in the Union had legalized no-fault divorce. What no-fault divorce did was it turned thousands of years of human law and tradition upside down. Uh, Al Mohler draws the conclusions. And, and see, I'm quoting from what's going to go, some of this is going to go in the book. This is out of my chapter on the case for marriage for young men. Why? Because a lot of these young guys are questioning, a lot of young Christian guys are questioning if they even want to be married. A lot of young Christian men and women are saying they're not going to actually marry, they're going to live together. Why? Because they have not seen the beauty of marriage. They've seen the disfigurement of marriage, as we'll get into in a minute. Moeller says, in effect, no-fault divorce means that the courts now assist... Now listen to this. Listen to this. In effect, no-fault divorce means that the courts now assist the violator of marriage vows. The laws used to protect marriage. I told you guys about watching the old movie with Mary one night on Turner Classic Movies. And the story was a guy in like 1950, just a typical guy living in the suburbs, a businessman. He had a nice wife, a couple kids. He was a churchgoer, rotary club guy, just a model citizen. He hires a secretary, falls in love with her, uh, decides he uh, doesn't love his wife, loves his, uh, this woman. So he goes to his wife and he says, I want a divorce. And she won't give him a divorce. And the whole rest of the movie is about him trying to plot and manipulate and force her into granting him a divorce because the laws were written so that some guy had a midlife crisis and kind of went off the deep end for a few years. He couldn't commit suicide for his family. So the laws were based and the government was behind that if you want a divorce, we're going to make it exceedingly, incredibly impossible for you to divorce. And you can't divorce unless your spouse gives you the divorce. And that's how it has been for hundreds of years. You see? And the whole moral of the story was, in the movie, was she wouldn't grant him a divorce. And one morning he's shaving and getting ready for work, and all of a sudden, this is three or four years later, it hits him like a ton of bricks. He really doesn't love that woman. He loves his wife. What the heck am I doing? I've lost my mind. He goes in and repents, asks his wife's forgiveness. She forgives him. He cuts it off with the other woman. <clears throat> they have a ceremony and renew their vows and recommit, and their kids are there, and it's a wonderful story. Don't you love Hollywood movies? See, the law is used to protect marriage. No-fault divorce, in effect, no-fault divorce means that our courts now assist the violator of marriage vows. Any spouse can now demand the divorce for any reason and can be assured that the courts will award the divorce and will often grant disproportionate favor to the party seeking the divorce. It was turned upside down. Uh, Barbara Defoe Whitehead, author of the influential book, The Divorce Culture, points to the therapeutic seduction of the culture as a contributing factor. According to therapeutic precepts, she explains, the fault for marital breakup must be shared even when one spouse unilaterally seeks a divorce. Hey, uh, both, both husband and wife are fallen. Everybody's fallen. 
In other words, no-fault divorce laws actually assume that both parties are equally at fault, since no party could be innocent. The perverse assumption inherent in this argument is that if any individual, watch this, is unhappy, if any individual is unhappy, someone else must necessarily be at fault. Once no-fault divorce become, became a reality, spouses found themselves simply informed of the fact that their marriage was effectively over. Many of these spouses were not even aware that the marriage was in trouble. In fact, trouble is not even necessary. You see how it shifted. What we have moved to, there are two types of marriage basically around today. See, what we have moved to, and, and see, what I just read has happened to some of you guys. Some of you guys in here are divorced, and you didn't want the divorce. But you're divorced, and there wasn't a darn thing you could do to stop it. And it happens to women. It happens to both sides. See, there's absolutely no protection whatsoever in this day and age. It is insane. Uh, there are basically two kinds of marriage. There is contract marriage, and there is covenant marriage. The modern view is that marriage is a contract. The biblical view is that marriage is a covenant. Um, You might turn with me to Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. Just look for Matthew and you'll find Malachi to the left. Are you guys with me? Am I boring you at all? Because the reason I'm going into this is because you have discussions in your family and stuff happens in your family and it happens in my family. We are living in absolutely unbelievable days. And as families dialogue and as family talk, we've got to have a defense. We've got to, uh, uh, Peter said, be ready to make a defense for the, lies, uh, for the hope that lies within you. Why do we believe in marriage? Why do we believe in covenant marriage? See, it's always been there. It's been in this country. Even people who weren't Christians practiced it. But now we're so far gone, we've got to go back and say, now wait a minute, what, what do we believe and why do we believe it? God ordained marriage. God created marriage. God invented marriage. God has the patent on marriage. God owns the copyright on marriage. Yes, he does. Malachi 2, verse 14. God is indicting the leaders. Why is he indicting them? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. Watch this. To whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Covenant. What is a covenant marriage? Uh, a covenant marriage, John Stott defines it this way. John Stott says, marriage is, is an exclusive heterosexual covenant between one man and one woman. This is all based out of Genesis 2. It's all in Genesis 2. It's never had to be defined before in history. Marriage is an exclusive heterosexual covenant between one man and one woman, ordained and sealed by God. There's your difference between a covenant marriage, and a contract marriage. See, we think, we think marriage is just a contract. It's like your, your neighbor's got a, uh, there's a lot between you and your neighbor, and he owns it, and he's not going to build on it, so you make a deal with him, and you shake hands, and you've got a, co a contract. We think that's marriage. That's not marriage. 
You see, marriage is a covenant. It's between a man and a woman. Now, a covenant has two parties, just as a contract does. But see, in marriage, what does Genesis 2.24 says? For this cause a man shall leave. Follow the thinking here. Follow the logic. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave, adhere permanently to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So a, a man and a woman, by the ordinance of marriage, before Almighty God, the two become one. So now the two are one. But in order to have a covenant, you've got to have another party. Who's the other party? God. You make vows not only before your wife and before your friends and family, you make vows before Almighty God. Um, let me read Stott's definition again. Marriage is an exclusive heterosexual covenant between one man and one woman, ordained and sealed by God, preceded by a public leaving of parents, consummated in sexual union, issuing in a permanently mutually supportive partnership, and normally crowned by the gift of children. Um, let me give five traits of covenant marriage. Number one, covenant marriage is permanent. Covenant marriage is sacred. Covenant marriage is intimate. They were naked and not ashamed. Covenant marriage is mutual. Covenant marriage is exclusive, forsaking all others, the traditional vows say. That means you, get on, you don't get on Facebook and check out your high school sweetheart and develop an online relationship with her. You forsake all others. You're in this. You're in this. So Cortez lands in Mexico, Veracruz. They don't know what they're facing. He's got these men. He's got 11 ships. They're going up the cliffs. They're heading out. They don't know what they're going to face. They don't know what's ahead of them. They don't have a clue. And as they're heading up those cliffs, they, somebody yells fire, and they look, and they see in the harbor all 11 ships on fire. Well, what, just what, what, a random chance event? No, Cortez, she had every, he set every ship on fire. Because, see, now there's no return, and now there's no escape. There's no going home. There's no going back to mommy and daddy. See, now these guys were highly motivated to succeed because they were out of options. And see, contract marriage, the thing with contract marriage is, uh, contract marriage, you're basically going on, you're going into marriage and divorce is an option. If, 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 see, if you're not happy. Because see, what's happened is the authority has become personal happiness. Well, you know, that's, that's not a real good authority in your life. That's not a real good foundation. Can, are you happy 24 hours a day in marriage? No. Shoot, you're not even happy with yourself 24 hours a day. Are you? So if happiness is the foundation, you're in trouble from day one. Well, you're telling me I've got to remove all my options? Well, that's what God says. Well, I don't think that's a wise course. I'd like to keep my options open. Well, actually, you don't keep your options open. Let me ask you something. Is armed robbery an option for you? If your visa bill comes in 500 bucks over and you try to pay it off every month and you and your wife didn't discuss it and you, you, you're 500 short, is it an option for you to get a handgun and go over here to the 7-Eleven and stick them up and say, give me 500 bucks out of the, out of the register? I don't want the whole thing, just 500 bucks, got to pay the visa bill. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Why are you laughing? Because that's stupid. And because you have eliminated armed robbery as an option in your life. It's not an option. You will not commit armed robbery. Is that right? Do that with divorce. Burn your ships. Well, you don't understand my wife. She's a very difficult woman. Oh, I'm sure she is. Have you ever met a woman who is not difficult? 
and this is why we edit these tapes. <laughs> but let me ask you this. Have you ever met a man who was not difficult? Why are we all difficult? Because we're all sinners, because we're all deeply flawed. Is that not right? We're all messed up. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all flawed. We are all sinners. We all got our stuff. We all have our blind spots and we don't even know it. Well, I found this young girl who's 24, 23. Oh, this girl, she's unbelievable. I'm sure she is. She sure conned you, man. What are you, 63? You can't handle that chick. She'll kill you. <laughs> oh, but I got this prescription. She'll still kill you. That's nonsense. That's insanity. Oh, she's going to make me happy. No, she's not. How many times have I talked with guys and they're leaving their wives and their kids and they're chucking it off? Well, oh, you don't understand. I have this one yeah, big guy, been an elder in the church, 60-something, throwing it all away, embarrassing his family. He, said, he looked at me, put his big fist on my desk. He said, don't I have a right to be happy? He gave me all the scriptures and finally we just cut through the stuff. And he goes, hey, don't I have a right to be happy? He was probably 67. I was 27. He was, he was acting like a fool. So where'd you get that idea? What about your wife? You're throwing away like a dish towel. Doesn't she have a right to be happy? What about your kids you're embarrassing and your grandkids? He dropped dead in his front yard three months later. I found it interesting because he had a hard heart. Um, all of these, um, am I boring you guys? No. You with me? See, hey, everybody's tough to live with. Everybody. And, and, and you know, where's, where's this quote? Uh, I, I can't find it. It's, it's, the, it's the contract thing. It's this whole soulmate Mary shifted. It's, I'm just looking for a soulmate. What does that mean? What is that? What is it? Sleepless in Seattle or You've Got Mail? Some of these movies that are just, it's all, it's all romance. Life isn't romance. Life is hard. Life is difficult. Life is stressful. Life isn't some, life isn't some romantic comedy. Life is hard. Marriage is hard. Is it not? It's incredibly hard. A little book William Peterson wrote years ago called Martin Luther Had a Wife. Martin Luther brought about the Reformation. He stood against the Catholic Church and he reiterated the doctrine of justification by faith, that we're saved not by our works, we're saved by grace. Shook the whole world up. And because of the printing press, his writings were distributed all over the world, or all over Europe. And it caused a radical transformation. And Luther, would, he started studying the Bible, and the light went on, and he said, you know what? And he was a Roman Catholic priest. And he started writing this stuff, and he said, we're saved by grace. We're not saved by works. And he started studying the Bible more, and he goes, you know what? We got this thing, and if you're a, a Roman Catholic priest, you can't be married. He says, I don't see that anywhere in the, I don't see that anywhere in the Bible, because it's not in the Bible. First Corinthians 9, Paul says, don't we have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the rest of the apostles? All of the apostles were married. The only one who wasn't was Paul. 
But if you study church history, they got off and they thought it was more holy to not be married if you were in ministry. God never says that. Read the requirements for an elder in 1 Timothy 3. He must be the husband of one wife. Yeah. You see? God's all for that. Well, I want to be really holy, so I am not going to be married. Well, that's not how you get holy. You see? God's normal course for most men is that they be married and they have children. God's not weird. God's not a prude. That doesn't make you holy. You're holy because the righteousness of Christ has been transferred into your account. God's for the family. God ordained the family. And so Martin Luther starts writing this stuff, and what happens? He didn't even know it. He's writing this stuff, and he's writing. it's being printed, and it's being distributed, and all these priests started getting married, and all these nuns start getting married, and you got, it's crazy. And he gets, he gets a letter from these 11 nuns at this nunnery, and they ask Martin Luther to come and rescue them. So he sends one of his guys, and he's got a truck, uh, 12 barrels full of herrings, and it goes in with herrings, and it comes back with 11 nuns. <laughs> True story. And, they all, and, and three of them go home, and the others he finds wives for, and there's this one gal that he can't find a wife for, and she has this one guy, and she's, they're interested, and then it didn't work out, and it kind of broke her heart, and then he's got this gal there, and he's trying to help her, and, she, and, and it's getting, he needs to get her married. It's kind of weird, and he's trying to assist her, and basically he's talking to her, and she says, is, he says, is there anyone that you would consider marrying? And she says, there's this man, and there's you. And he married her. It's really an interesting story because they were absolutely complete, total opposites. He was used to studying and being quiet. So after they got married, he went into a study and was there for three days and didn't come out. And she brought in a worker and he dismantled the door. <laughs> Ticked him off. She didn't care. That was her husband. You can't be isolated like that. One day he was in a study and, and he would come out for meals, but he was just depressed. He, he, he was prone to depression. He was just so down. He was so discouraged. He was just, and, and he's in the study one morning after three or four days and, and she walks in and she's got, uh, she's in all black, which she would wear to funerals. And she walks in and he looks up and he goes, who died? She said, obviously God did. He said, what? She said, you've been in here for four days acting like God's dead. I thought I would come in and mourn with you. <laughs> now there's a woman. <laughs> Yesterday afternoon, I'm, I'm in the kitchen making my protein. Mary said, what's wrong with you? I said, nothing. She said, something's wrong. I said, I'm fine. She said, you're not fine. What's going on? So I told her I'd been thinking about something all day long. She said, you know what? That's an attack from the devil on you, Steve. You're always vulnerable right there. She said, that is absolute nonsense. You're trying to finish this chapter. You should expect to be attacked, and this is an attack. Put that out of your mind. I said, you can't tell me what to do. <laughs> She was absolutely right on target. And earlier in the day, my son Josh, we were talking on the phone, and as we're finishing, he goes, Dad, what's wrong with you? I said, nothing. He goes, you don't seem yourself. Something's bothering you. And I said, uh, uh, well, I got to find this receipt for the, uh, which I did, but that wasn't the issue. It was a partial truth. See, he can read me and she can read me. And I needed both of them to pull me out of the pit. The two are stronger than one. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. We can't live by ourselves, guys. You see, we're all flawed people. I want to read something to you from Ligon Duncan. He is a pastor. He is a theologian. 
He writes about the creation ordinances. Okay? Now I want you to get this because there is wisdom and beauty in this. Okay? So the four creation ordinances in Genesis 1 and 2. All right? Now, listen to this. Stay with me on this. This, this is a nugget. This is gold. Duncan says, there are at least four obligations in that original relationship, Genesis 1 and 2. And ironically, corresponding to those four great obligations are four blessings. So the blessings and the obligations of this relationship in Genesis 1, 26 and following are coordinated. Okay? The blessings come in the obligation and the obligation comes in the blessing. When, in other words, when you get married, you're taking on obligations, you're taking on responsibilities, are you not? The man is to be the primary provider. If anyone doesn't provide for his own, as is 1 Timothy 5.19, if anyone doesn't provide for his own, he is worse than an unbeliever. So you take on a family, you've got to provide for that family. That's your job. doesn't mean your wife can't help, but you're the primary provider. Every family needs two things. Every family needs provision and every family needs care. Every family needs provision, every family needs nurturing. Okay? So you've got a husband and wife. It's very hard to raise a family by yourself. The two are stronger. So the man's primary task is provision. The wife's primary task is nurture. Doesn't mean we don't help each other out, but you can't breastfeed and she can. You get it? <laughs> Try it. It doesn't work. Okay. Blessings come in the obligation. The obligation comes in the blessing. It's interesting how God tied blessing and obligation together. It reminds us, doesn't it, that the way of blessedness or the way of happiness is in the way of duty. Because in the very created order, God made duty and the doing of duty to be blessed. Now that is such an alien concept to our culture. We tend to think that if you have to do something, it kind of ruins it. If you have to do it, how can you really desire to do that? Isn't that against grace or something? But the idea that duty is opposed to grace is utterly alien to biblical thought. It's alien to Moses, it's alien to Paul, it's alien to Jesus. Some of you may know of Robert E. Lee's famous quote, duty is the sublimest word in the English language. And that ideal is totally alien to our culture because duty is confused with I have to do it. But here we see in the very duties of the created order, the blessings are intertwined so that as a man does what God created him to do, interestingly enough, he finds his fulfillment and his satisfaction and his happiness and his blessedness. As you take on the obligations of marriage, if you take on the obligations of work, as you take on the obligations of, of birthing children and raising them and looking over them and being in touch with them, those are huge responsibilities, but intertwined are the blessings. And the men that don't want those because they're self-centered miss those blessings. Not everyone who is not married is out of the will of God. Some men are not, God has not called them to marriage. I, I, don't, I don't want you to misunderstand. But if out of selfishness, you have blocked yourself off from responsibility and working in human relationship, you're missing blessings you don't even know are there. Uh, did you catch that quote from Lee? He used the word sublime in relationship to duty. What does sublime mean? Sublime. Here's what Webster says. When something is sublime, it is noble, exhausted, uh, exalted. I'm sorry, noble, it is exalted, it is majestic. 
It inspires awe or admiration through grandeur or beauty. Let me tell you something. The way God designed marriage to be is a thing of beauty. It's absolutely a thing of beauty. But sin came in. What God does when he redeems us, he wants to redeem our relationships. And that's why in Ephesians 5, it talks about be controlled by the Spirit of God. Colossians 3, in reference to the same thing, says let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. When you've got a husband and wife, flawed people, sinners, who are living under the control and ministry of the word of God, you know what? Good things happen. And suddenly that marriage can become a thing of beauty again. Uh, sublime, if you just Google it, here's what you get. Sublime is of such excellence, grandeur, or beauty as to inspire great admiration or awe. When a man does his duty in his marriage, and, what do we, what, and you say, well, what are all those? Well, we say for better or worse, richer, poorer, in sickness and health. Forsaking all others till death do us part. That is an obligation. And in those obligations where you put down your own happiness, Jesus said, if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you become the servant of all. You're not there to be a tyrant. You're not there to be served. The Son of Man didn't come to be served. He came to serve, and that should be what you're doing and what I'm doing. We are servant leaders. You husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way. As with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. We're different. We're radically different. Does she always do what I want her to do? No. Do I always do? Does she disappoint? Yeah, do I disappoint? But you know what? It doesn't matter. You stay the course. You fulfill your duty. And when a man fulfills his duty, it's a beautiful thing. When my daughter was 12 years old, I came downstairs. I was going in the kitchen to do something, and Rachel had a bunch of her little friends there, and Mary was there talking to one of the moms, and these, these little girls are always at our house. And they were obviously going somewhere and doing something. I just waved and went in the kitchen. And as I'm walking down the stairs, I see this one little girl I'd never seen before, all the other girls I knew. And this little girl kind of stood out because she wasn't like the other little girls, little 12-year-olds. She, uh, she was hard, just hard-looking, dressed in all black, jet black, hard hair, uh, heavy black makeup, black fingernails, that, uh, that, that goth look. She just... And she didn't fit. And I noticed her and just said hi to everybody. I walked into the kitchen and 10 minutes later they got it worked out and that mom was taking the girl somewhere and Mary came in. And um, I said, Mary, uh, who was that little girl there? And I'll, I'll call her Jenny, that's not her name. She goes, oh, that was Jenny. I said, Jenny who? Jenny, and she gave me her last name. I said, what? That little girl's been over at our house so many times. Yeah, that was Jenny. I said, Jenny? No. She goes, yeah. I said, what happened? And let me tell you, that little girl was the cutest, sweetest, happiest, joyful little spirit. Just a fun little girl. That's Jenny? I said, my gosh, what happened to her? And she said, you didn't hear. I said, hear what? And here's what happened to Jenny. Two weeks before, they're having dinner. Mom, dad, four kids. Christian family. At the end of dinner, her dad says, I've got to say something to all of you, and I'm sorry to tell you this, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you. Um, 
Over the years, your mother and I have grown apart. What we once had, we don't have anymore. I have met another woman. I'm in love with her. I'm going to marry her. And I don't want to prolong this. Um, and he left. He just left. Let me tell you what that guy did. He killed that family. And I'll tell you what else he did. He killed that little girl. You know why that girl was dressed in all black and changed her appearance and demeanor? That little girl was in, she was grieving. And she was in deep mourning. And she has never recovered. A couple years, she was always a great student. A couple years later, she told Rachel, I will never, ever be in a place of dependence upon a man again as long as I live. Do you blame her? Did I mention her dad was a pastor? Does that little girl and her brothers and sisters have issues with Jesus Christ? Yeah. Because the man who represented Christ to them didn't do his duty. The man who they watch preach the Bible and say one thing publicly did another thing completely to the contrary. So do they have problems with Christianity? Do the boys have problems with Christian manhood? Did the girls have trouble trusting a man? She was a great student. She became an unbelievable student, got a full ride, if I'm not mistaken, to an Ivy League school. All out of the motivation that I will never be in that place of dependence upon a man again because men cannot be trusted. And can you not blame her? And can you blame her? No, you can't. See, what is that all about? You've got a man who didn't do his duty. See, the beauty of marriage that God put together, that beauty of marriage happens when a husband and wife, instead of being concerned and living off their own happiness and on a whim, breaking something apart that destroys people, See, the beauty is when someone does their duty. The beauty is when someone's responsible. The beauty is when your wife doesn't understand you and doesn't get you and you stay the course. I'm not saying this is easy. This is incredibly hard and it's only done by the power of the Spirit of God. But I'm saying, guys, God has a plan for marriage. And he knows how to make it work. And we're living in a culture where the foundations are being destroyed. And that may be the case, but that doesn't mean the foundations have to be destroyed in our families. And I want to I say this, because some of you guys are here and you've been divorced. And what happened to you is you got ambushed and you didn't want the divorce and you couldn't stop it. However, there could be someone here who is divorced and you were the cause of the divorce. And now you see it and now you feel terrible about it. Now, if your wife is remarried, there is nothing you can do. All you can try to do is honorably repair relationships in such a way. You, you, that, that's all you, you, you run to the living Christ and repent of your sin. You don't minimize it you confess it. There is a godly sorrow that is godly repentance. And you run to Christ, and there is forgiveness. 
And then you ask him to rebuild as best as possible the relationships with your kids and all of that. And it's going to take a while to earn trust, but trust can be re-earned. But you may be on your second or third marriage, what I'm, or you may be on your first marriage. Can I say this to you? Whatever marriage you're in, make it work and do your duty before the living God today. Because that's a beautiful thing. And that's a thing that honors the Lord. And it's a thing that the world needs to see. In Ephesians 5, marriage is a picture of how Christ loves the church. Does your wife feel more understood by you today than she did a year ago? And say, I'm asking that of me. Because if she doesn't, I'm dropping the ball. See, that's my duty. He's a God of grace and he's a God of mercy. But he expects us, by his help, to go home and do our duty. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your help. Thank you for your assistance. Thank you for your forgiveness. We are all deeply flawed men. We are great sinners, but you are a great Savior. And in a day and age where the foundations are being destroyed, would you help us in our marriages? Would you grow us and mature us to be men who could be trusted? And men that will do our duty, not only as unto our family, but as unto you. And you bless this and you honor it. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his, that he may strongly support them. We need that support. We covet it. We thank, we're thankful that it's ours in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.